I'm bewildered as to why there have been no lawsuits. Uh, appropriate money specifically for the study of this disease at the CDC. They got about half a million dollars the first year. Every year they got more and more and more after about a decade. Their total uh, amount of money they got to study this disease was about $150 million. But in fact, they misappropriated the entire amount. Uh, this uh, money was known as the goose that laid the golden egg. Emmy was the goose, but it was producing golden eggs for all the scientists uh, in this particular division who were supposed to be studying Emmy, but instead were using it for pet projects. But I knew, because I was following very closely and I was talking to people inside the, the CDC uh, who were secretly telling me that this was not being done. And I could see it wasn't being done. It was just lie after lie after lie for an entire decade. The actual crimes that were committed at CDC, which I reported uh, in Osler's Web, which were then followed up by two federal investigations in the U.S., and my allegations were confirmed. When I first turned my book in, the first draft to my editor, he, he said, reminds me of about the Nazis, the banality of evil. You can really name on two hands the people who in the 80s and 90s really controlled health policy on this disease and made the big decisions like, we're not gonna fund this. We're not gonna waste resources doing research. We're not gonna do epidemiology. We don't wanna know how many people have this. We don't want to know if it's contagious. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US, killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of the podcast Medical Error Interviews. In this episode, which is part two of my conversation with journalist Hillary Johnson, she shares more about her life and her work. If you're not familiar with the story of how a biological disease that occurs in sporadic and epidemic forms was labeled as all in your head by the Center for Disease Control, then you'll want to hear how it all went down from the one person who exposed the truth. 
Hillary also talks about the healthiest nine months of the 35 years she's been ill when she was taking the medication Amplogen, and she also shares why she's still not taking it. And Hillary shares about being banned from the Center for Disease Control by seeking the truth, and how that did not stop her from writing Osler's Web. Hillary also tells about how the Center for Disease Control and a United Kingdom psychiatrist obliterated the lives of millions of people by labeling their biological disease as psychosomatic, thereby denying them appropriate health care. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and other podcast platforms and please leave a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. You can become a monthly patron by going to patreon.com slash medical error interviews. If you are experiencing the fallout from a medical error, and need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. And now here is part two of my interview with journalist Hilary Johnson. And a note of caution, some people may be triggered by Hilary's experience with the healthcare system. But getting back to this, the cardiologist I mentioned, anyone who has major surgery has to go through, uh, has to have a cardiac workup. So I went to a woman who uh, did a number of EKGs and all of them were highly abnormal. You know, they said things like myocardia, ischemia, um, everything short of a heart attack actually. And, she said, there is no way I'm going to approve you for surgery given until I, until I understand what has happened to your heart. And so I thought, okay. But meanwhile, uh, there was a death in my family and I flew to Los Angeles and I had a heart attack on the plane going to Los Angeles. And I know this because I had all the symptoms and I had to be wheeled off the plane because I couldn't walk. And uh, I came back to New York about five days later and I, the next day I went to the cardiologist and she did another EKG and she said, oh my God, this time it, it says you've had a heart attack. It said prior uh, uh, myocardia infarction, that I'd had a, a heart attack. And so at that point she said, no, I'm not approving you. I'm not approving you at all. And uh, she said, we need to figure this all out. And it's going to take some time. It might take a few weeks, maybe more. But I'm not letting you uh, have surgery yet. And uh, meanwhile, uh, I was quite concerned. I thought, well, I really should be having this surgery. And also at this time, I was working with an attorney who was helping me uh, to uh, who was helping me in a struggle, uh, like a four-year struggle I'd been having with the disability insurance company, who uh, they were maintaining that I was making this up, of course. 
you know, that's what they do. That's their job. So my lawyer at the time, so I told the lawyer, the cardiac, uh, the cardiologist won't approve me for surgery. And he said, well, let's uh, ask her if she'll write just a one sentence note to the insurance company, letting us know that and letting them know that, you know, that you had a heart attack and these other abnormalities, et cetera. And when I called to ask her if she would do that, she, she said she refused. And then the next day, and, and she didn't say why, she just said, well, I, I don't know what's wrong with your heart. I'm not going to write anything to anybody about it. And the next day I heard from her staff that I had been approved for surgery. And I called her up and I said, uh, what changed? And she said, nothing changed. It just dawned on me that you have cancer and you need to have a surgery. So whatever happens, happens. I'll just never forget that phrase, you know, whatever happens, happens, you know, if you, if you die, you'll die, but, you know, I'm not going to write a letter to your disability insurer, you know, God, God forbid I should be involved in that. Um, I, you know, I, I, several years later, I, I, I felt I was having a heart attack again, and I went into New York, I, I called up, and she was the only cardiologist I knew, so I went, I made an appointment to see her, and uh, uh, she walked into the uh, exam room where I was sitting and without even touching me or asking me a single question about my symptoms, uh, and she had someone with her, it was if she needed uh, backup or something. And she said, Hillary, I will, I will agree to, uh, to examine you, but first you need to agree to get psychiatric counseling. <laughs> and I said, well, why would I need psychiatric counseling? And she said, well, you know why. And I said, okay, I'm leaving, goodbye, and I left. And uh, so, you know, these are the kinds of things that are so typical, they're, you know, it's, it's, you know, people joke, you could walk into an ER with, with every limb broken but if you mentioned that you had chronic fatigue syndrome, you'd be sent home with some aspirin. You know, that's the, the joke. Um, but it's really, it's really that bad. Now, I, I don't know, is it still that bad? I don't know. Um, I, I went to an ER about five or six or seven years ago with cardiac pain. And they did a workup and they gave me aspirin and they watched me for 10 hours and then they sent me home and told me to see a cardiologist. I, I went to see a cardiologist who uh, I told her my symptoms and she said, oh, that's just stress. And so, you know, I, I, I know I have cardiac problems. All my EKGs are always wildly abnormal. But I've given up. I, you know, I'll, I may die of a heart attack. I, I don't know. Uh, but that's, you know, that's what it's like to have this disease. Mm -hmm. uh, being discriminated against uh, and bias built into the system. I wonder, do you uh, or have you uh, not disclosed that you have ME so that you could potentially get better medical care? Do you know, I, I know that I have on occasion not disclosed that. In fact, 
I think mostly now I do not disclose it unless I've been seeing a doctor for literally years and they've been treating me for some other issue uh, and we have a good rapport. Um, if, if it seems like it might be relevant, I may disclose. But I will tell you, even then, it does, it does alter the relationship. You know, it changes the relationship and in very subtle ways, you know, that, that you can't really put your finger on. But, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a slight pullback, there's a slight change in attitude. They're not quite as friendly. Uh, you know, there's a, it's, you know, they look at you sort of like, uh, hmm, well, that changes things or something. You know, it's, uh, there's, this, you know, th there's no understanding. There's no real uh, knowledge in the medical, among medical practitioners about anything to do with this disease, um, unfortunately. And, you know, we can thank uh, the Centers for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health. We, we, we see how these terrible things come out in the press, defamatory, uh, defamatory stories constantly. Uh, and they're, you know, the NIH and the CDC are the ones who are the original defamers of people with this disease. They never do a thing to contradict these articles that no scientists at, at either uh, the NIH uh, or the CDC in the U.S. step forward to say, to counter uh, these things that appear in the, the lay press. Uh, it's just kind of like, it's almost like they're glad because it's buying them time. Um, it's allowing them to continue to uh, fund the disease in the most minimal ways. And, uh, you know, there's no crisis, doesn't matter uh, that, that 4 million people have it now who, who didn't have it uh, 30 years ago. Uh, what can I say? Um, I was going to, you reminded me of something about the, uh, you asked me a question about disability insurers and are, is there a concern about you know, disability insurers on the part of the NIH and the CDC. And just an anecdote about the, that, that uh, decision to name the disease chronic fatigue syndrome, to rename it to chronic fatigue syndrome, and that exchange of letters over a period of a year. One of the doctors, um, I believe it was Nelson Gantz, made a joke in his letter about, you know, um, calling it by anything other than chronic fatigue syndrome. He, he said, we don't want to, uh, we don't want to set disability insurers up for chronic uh, reimbursements. And, uh, you know, he made a big joke out of that. Uh, but his, the, the underlying message was, we don't want to harm disability insurers and cause them to have to pay out for years and years and years on this disease. Every joke is a half truth. Yes, yes. And I don't think, you know, the way he wrote it was kind of funny. I mean, maybe he felt a little nervous about putting it down on paper. But I do think that, that, that he truly meant that. 
you know, we need to be sure that we don't get these insurance companies hung up on uh, committed to supporting these people for years on end. So, so therefore, we, we need to be sure that uh, we don't give it a name that makes it sound uh, serious. So we can squarely put uh, the embedding of ME as a medical error squarely on the CDC when they uh, did a category mistake in saying that this illness is psychological hysteria, taking it out of the biomedical realm, thereby embedding a medical error not only in the U.S., but globally. Everywhere. Everywhere. In fact, uh, something that people may not know, although it's in my book, um, but people didn't seem to really pick up on this. Um, this would be of interest to patients in the United Kingdom uh, because it regards, uh, it's regarding uh, Simon Wesley, the psychiatrist who's been so influential and destructive in the UK in reframing this disease as psychosis and hysteria, etc. And after the CDC published its 1988 paper in which they rolled out the name chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, it was kind of like throwing spaghetti at the wall and see if it sticks, and boy did it stick. It's a very popular name uh, among the medical profession. And uh, you know, amid this collection of letters, in came a letter at the very end, uh, after the paper came out, uh, to, I believe, Gary Holmes saying, from Simon Wesley. It was a lengthy letter, and, and you could almost, uh, I, as I wrote in my book, I, I think I said you could, almost, you could almost see him rubbing his hands together in pleasure, you know, like, oh boy, you know, rolling up his sleeves rubbing his hands together like oh now we're really rolling now we've really got something and he basically said you know congratulated them on their choice of names and he said that you know essentially i haven't read the letter in a long time but he I, i'm quite sure he basically uh, you know said we in the uk we, meaning he and his psychiatry buddies, have long thought, you know, this was a psycho, psychogenic or psychiatric, um, don't quote me on the terms, I'm not quite sure what terms he used, but it was clear, you know, we have long thought this was a psychological problem, not an organic problem. And uh, I look forward, you know, I'm eager to collaborate with the CDC, and I look forward to a long uh, and productive future uh, collaborating with you guys and going forward in, into this new world where you have, you have, you know, characterized this disease in the appropriate way, and now we can all move forward. And that was the that was the gist of his letter, and uh, you know I had uh, in the nineties I I had I I didn't really follow that uh, I was concerned with other aspects of the story so I I don't I don't know 
to what extent Wesley ingratiated himself into the inner uh, workings of the CDC. My impression was that he did not, but it's possible that he may have made you know, a lot of phone calls, he made a lot of friends there, et cetera. Um, but I, I, can't, I can't pin anything on him, put it that way, other than that letter. You know, he was thrilled that the CDC had washed away myalgic encephalomyelitis and so on. Well, he, he predicted his own future. He's managed to build uh, his reputation, his career, his bank account on the idea that ME is a psychological condition and has rolled that out globally. Um, and there are folks who say that he should be charged with crimes against humanity. And I can't figure out any reason to argue against that. Well, my question has always been, yeah, I think they should all be charged. Uh, I do think they, there's, I'm bewildered as to why there have been no lawsuits. And until yesterday, you know, we, we heard uh, the incredible news that patients who were uh, made to look ridiculous as if they were imagining their disease in a Netflix documentary called Afflicted, four of them with ME uh, have filed suit for defamation against Netflix. Now that's fantastic. And I hope they win and I hope they bankrupt Netflix. However, uh, I, I really, you know, the original defamers are people like John Kaplan, Gary Holmes, this guy, Larry Schoenberger, the, the, who was in charge of them, who made the, who called the shots basically told them what to do. And uh, they, they did it, you know, they were good soldiers. And, uh, you know, they're, they're so, you know, it's interesting, you can really name on two hands, the people who in the 80s and 90s, really controlled health policy on this disease and made the big decisions like, we're not going to fund this, we're not going to, uh, waste resources uh, doing research. We're not going to do epidemiology. We don't want to know how many people have this. Uh, we don't want to know if it's contagious. I don't know that I ever saw those words in print, but that's really kind of all you can imagine for ignoring you know, the way they ignored this disease. I have often thought, yes, of course, uh, you know, there should be a trial in The Hague in in the European Union. There really should be. I mean, what's gone on uh, is, is outrageous. I have often wondered if, uh, if it's possible to unknight uh, someone who's been knighted in the UK. I've never heard of that, but it seems to me his knighthood should certainly be taken away. I mean, that's a disgrace. Um, if you're into that, I suppose. I mean, maybe you don't care about whether someone's been knighted or not, but wow, that, that is really, that's kind of like getting the president's the pres, presidential medal of honor in the United States, which they do, they give to maybe four or five Americans every year. People who contributed culturally, scientifically, uh, to literature, etc. cetera. Uh, Wesley's corollary in the, the US was an NIH scientist named Stephen Strauss. When I first turned my book in, the first draft to my editor, who also was the editor of And the Band Played On, uh, 
he he said Stephen Strauss reminds me of Hannah Arendt's comment about the Nazis, which was uh, the quote that included the phrase "the banality of evil." That was Stephen Strauss. He was a very evil person in the way Wesley is in the UK. So there, there's a corollary, you know, between these two guys. And in fact, I, I think I mentioned it was Strauss who was was invited into this group of guys who uh, created chronic fatigue syndrome. And I believe it was Strauss's suggestion, uh, the name. But uh, yeah, I think I think you know the original defamers going back uh, to that were the CDC who, you know, just obliterated an entire uh, portion of the American population by saying they weren't sick, they were making it up. Uh, all the things they said, I, it's a litany, I don't have to go through it with you, it's painful. Um, but these things they said, they not only caused uh, incredible problems in receiving medical care, they caused problems with in interpersonal relationships uh, that uh, these very sick people had with their spouses. I remember uh, talking to Cheney in later years after I'd finished the book, and he told me about how he, uh, he, he did so much of his time was consumed with being, uh, you know, being deposed by attorneys uh, who were representing people who had this disease, women who were being divorced by their husbands. Their husbands were trying to get custody of their children, saying that they weren't sick, they were crazy, and they didn't want their children growing up with uh, a crazy woman. Um, and Cheney had to, you know, say, no, this isn't mental illness, this is a physical illness. Uh, so much of his time was involved in that, just trying to protect these people uh, because of this defamation. And uh, add into you know, slander, libel, defamation, you can then get, move on to uh, the actual crimes that were committed at CDC, which I reported uh, in Osler's Web, uh, which were then followed up by two federal investigations in the US and my allegations were confirmed by federal uh, investigators. And this was the, the story of the CDC, which received money beginning in 1988 from Congress. Patients were very powerful advocates and activists back in the 80s. You know, it's lost on this new generation of advocates. Uh, but uh, they were very powerful, and they got uh, they got a very targeted group of members of the House and Senate to uh, appropriate money specifically for the study of this disease at the CDC. They got about half a million dollars the first year. Every year they got more and more and more. I think, uh, based on uh, some math I did after about a decade, their total uh, amount of money they got to study this disease was about $150 million. And uh, unfortunately, the investigation into that only went back two years. So they claimed that CDC had uh, misappropriated only $13 million. But in fact, they misappropriated the entire amount 
this uh, money was known officially, not officially, un unofficially, as the goose that laid the golden egg, okay? Emmy was the goose, but it was producing golden eggs for all the scientists at, at, uh, in this particular division who were supposed to be studying Emmy, but instead were using it for pet projects. Uh, they were buying uh, more equipment for their laboratories. They were buying chemicals they needed. Uh, they were, they, at one point, they used it to order stationery uh, with let, letterhead stationery. They bought office furniture and computers with this money. And yet, they went, they're, they're the head of the CDC and, and the head of these top, top divisions went to uh, Congress every year in the spring to uh, ask for money at uh, Senate and House appropriation hearings. Um, and they would write these letters that I have, and they're all, they're just a list of lies. They're all untrue. Everything, every word is, it's like the joke about the Hollywood agent, which is, hello, he lied. You know, everything they said was a lie. Uh, and it was this long list of all the things that they purported to have done the previous year uh, toward their ME research. But I knew, because I was following very closely and I was talking to people inside the, the CDC uh, who were secretly telling me that this was not being done. And I could see it wasn't being done. It was just lie after lie after lie for an entire decade. And, uh, you know, this is well documented in my book, why they're, you know, and, and, and then it was followed up by an investigation of the Department of Health and Human Services and the, the what was then called the General Accounting Office, which is Congress's sort of independent investigative arm. Uh, these two agencies uh, confirmed uh, my allegations in Osler's web. So, this really, really happened, as they say. And why there has been no lawsuit against this, I, I, I'm just bewildered. I don't have the personal resources uh, to engage an attorney uh, to go after these people, but there, you know, many of them are still alive. And uh, they're still, they're, they, some have retired from the CDC, but you know, Walter Dowdle, who was the number two man at the CDC, he was the acting deputy director. He knew this money was being misappropriated because I know the CDC scientists who told him. And the C and Walter Dowdle, uh, the number two guy at the CDC said, we're gonna look into this, we're gonna deal with it, we're gonna make it right. And uh, the scientist walked out of Dowdle's office feeling, oh, this is great, you know, it's, this is gonna stop. And instead what happened is that this scientist's uh, key card, which allowed him free entry into the laboratories, the, the research laboratories at CDC, was reprogrammed the, the minute he left the office. And he could no longer get into the laboratories and talk to the scientists. So that's all that happened. And uh, not long after that, he left the agency because he was fearful he would be fired and lose his pension for having spilled the beans, in effect, 
to the uh, number two guy at the, at the agency. Wow. So as you're describing that, I, I was trying to think, so maybe it's ignorance that was going on with those CDC, that group of guys. And then I thought, well, maybe it's incompetence. And then I thought, well, maybe it's collusion, but it sounds more and more like sociopathy. Well, I'll tell you, you can rule out uh, ignorance because uh, I, I wish I could somehow read this letter to you. I, I just don't have it at my fingertips. It was actually, you know, now when I read it 35 years later, I, I burst out laughing because it is very funny. It was very clever, but it was a letter I discovered when I was hanging out in the corridor in this division before I was quote banned, right? And I looked, I was just idly reading their uh, cork board on, on the wall of that corridor. And there was a letter called Dear Sirs. It's famously now called the Dear Sirs letter. And it says, Dear Sirs, I have, uh, and I think it said, I don't know that it said chronic fatigue syndrome, but it made it very clear that it was chronic fatigue syndrome. And uh, maybe it said chronic mono or something. And it went on, it was two paragraphs long. And it said, I've tried everything, and it, it listed every single vitamin known to man, then every single uh, uh, antidepressant known to man, then every, <laughs> it listed about uh, 47 uh, drugs and vitamins, and, you know, I've tried all of this, and, but they only work when I, when I take them, <laughs> okay? And... Um, there was a second paragraph that was equally, uh, it was so, it was so craven and so cynical and I admit funny, uh, but it clearly, it, it was the most uh, devastating kind of satire because it was about people who were truly ill, but it was making fun of them. It was having a laugh um, off their suffering and clearly they, you know, anyone who, you know, and it was written by, it was unsigned, it was anonymous. I never did find out who authored it. Um, I wonder, you know, if it was John Kaplan or Gary Holmes, but I don't want to, you know, I don't know. But uh, I saw it in 1986, uh, or no, it was dated 1986. I saw it in 87, so it had already been up there almost a year. Um, and it was written, you know, shortly after, you know, within the year of their return from incline and uh, in, in Nevada. Um, and this letter stayed up that I, I copied it. I stood right in front of everybody and copied every word of it into my notebook. I didn't touch it, I just copied it. And several people saw me doing that. And a few years later, it was still up there. I, I didn't know that, but I was told that it was still up there. And the scientist at CDC, who was my sort of uh, secret source over many years, said I, I had to argue with Larry Schoenberger to finally take that letter off the bulletin board. And he said this letter, you know, I, he said, I told Schoenberger, Schoenberger is the guy who said that, uh, who banned me from the CDC and spoke of me as if I was a caged animal. Uh, anyway, um, the, the scientists told me that 
Schoenberger did not want to remove this letter from the bulletin board as, as late as 1989, 1990. They still thought it was funny. Uh, and uh, Holmes, uh, not Holmes, uh, the scientist I, I'm thinking of, really, really had to argue with Schoenberger. And finally he said, uh, Larry, this letter is going to come back to haunt us. And at which point Schoenberger relented and he took, took it down. So it was removed from the bulletin board sometime in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, but it was up on the bulletin board for a long time. And it was obviously reflective of what these scientists and epidemiologists thought about people with this disease. So I, I don't think you can write it off to ignorance. I think this is what they really thought. And it did come back to haunt them because it appeared in full in Oslo's web and it's appeared elsewhere online. Uh, you can find it on the internet. Uh, we'll try to include a link to that in the show notes. Okay, okay. Yeah. So you've been dealing with ME for 35 years and you've also been dealing with uh, covering ME as a journalist for 30 some years. Uh, where are you now? Uh, so this is a two-part question. Where are you now personally health-wise and where are you career-wise around ME? Okay, uh, pers very personal questions. I, I don't think I've ever answered these. Uh, you know, you ask me about my personal health and I just fall silent. It's, it's hard to, you know, it's, it's such a huge question. I, I remember going to a neurologist a couple of, three or four years, no, yeah, four or five years ago now, long time. And he was very bouncy and jolly and he came into the office and uh, the exam room and he said, so Ms. Johnson, what are your symptoms? And this is after, you know, 30 years of this disease. And to try to, to try to capsulize my symptoms to this man, I, I, I fell silent again. I, he, and he actually said, well, you must have some symptoms or you wouldn't be here. <laughs> and, you know, I just felt like getting up and walking out. I, I just felt like this is so, this is so hard to even begin to explain. And I'm not sure I can explain it now. I mean, I, Everything you can think of, every bad thing you can think of that comes with this disease has, has visited itself upon me. Um, uh, you know, uh, I've had small strokes. I, I have all the brain abnormalities. I've been diagnosed with encephalitis five or six times in, in these years that have gone by by different neurologists. Uh, these are just the you know, what I'm telling you are just the, the things that you would write down on a piece of paper or that you might find in a medical file. Uh, it's so much bigger than that. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, I, I feel like I'm living in a dream. And there was the me that lived for 35 years without this disease. And now there's the me that's lived for 35 years with the disease. And I think of that other me, and I can really barely believe that I was that person. 
it's like a, 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 a dream. And I wake up in the middle of the night or I wake up at four in the morning and I can't get back to sleep because I've been dreaming about that other me. And, you know, I wake up to the reality of, of the, the me now. <laughs> and it's so very, very painful that uh, I, it's almost like I feel an electric shock go through my body uh, just from the emotional pain. Of, it sounds traumatic. Yes, the, just the, I think the overall sensation is of the incredible waste of time. You know, it's one thing to be sick with the flu for, you know, a week. You're so frustrated, you're so angry. You want to get back to work, you just can't wait for it to go away. I remember having pneumonia once when I was 32 and, oh my God, I was frustrated. I, I couldn't. I had to stay in bed for 10 days and I thought I was going to lose my mind. And, uh, uh, but to have something that's so profound, I mean, those, those are like uh, illnesses like pneumonia or the flu. It's like a mosquito bite compared to, I mean, and, you know, to, to I just, you know, I, I dream about all the books I would have written, uh, all the, friends I would have had, the friends I would have kept. I, you know, I think people talk about how they, friends leave them, friends go away. They lose their friends when they get this disease. And that's what I thought too, that was my narrative. And when I really think about it now, I left them because I found at 35, I could find no way to express to them what had happened to me. And there was this tremendous wall between us. You know, they would call me up and say, how are you doing? And I'd say, well, I'm, I'm really terribly unwell. And they'd say, yeah, but, but aside from that, <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, and it just, uh, you know, I, no one understood. I, I got no uh, sense that anybody realized that my life had changed or that I was suffering. Uh, or that, you know, I, and I, I think I resented that. And, but more than that, I just felt this kind of helplessness, this inability to communicate what was going on. Uh, I, I couldn't find the words. And as the years went by, it became easier for me not, not to, to even try. And of course, your friendships sort of drift away eventually. People move on with their lives. They get married, they have children, they travel, they buy houses, they, they accrue money. All kinds of things happen to them. Their lives look, you know, the lives of the people who were my close friends when I was 35, my God, they look, they, they look so uh, unreal to me almost. They, they, they look so good, you know? Um, and, uh, so it's all very painful. So, you know, it's, it's a physical, uh, I, I hate to say this because I don't want to play into the hands of the evildoers, but, you know, it's a, it's a physical devastation that it's hard to even find words for. But it's, a, it's an emotional event. I, I don't think I can say much more, I'm afraid. I, yeah, I, I can hear you. It's, uh, 
the physical disease takes the physical toll, but what emerges out of this disease and its uh, social construct uh, also is a burden socially, cognitively, emotionally. Yes. And you end up, you know, with a, with a, you start out with this, what in retrospect feels like or was this colorful, beautiful life uh, where you did things every day and you took friendships for granted and you went places and you had a career and you had an identity and you had talents and people, you know, uh, appreciated those talents and so on and so forth. And then suddenly the film goes to black and white and it slowed way down and uh, it, it gets blurry around the edges and pretty soon it's just kind of a black and white hazy blur. I so. want to go back to something uh, that you mentioned in an email before about you had a good period when you had access to a medication called Amplogen. The, the nine months, the best nine months of the 35 years I've had this disease, um, I have been, you know, the disease impoverished me. I, I mentioned I made no money off my book. Um, and I've remained poor because I haven't been able to hold a job. I do try to write. Um, I'm writing, a, I have a subscription website where I write stuff and I ask people to pay for it uh, because I don't, you know, writing is very hard for me. I don't want to do it anymore for free. I just don't. And that's that. I make no apologies. I am a writer and I want to be paid for my writing. But I will say that for gosh, most of the years I've had this disease, I have been writing about it and publishing for free. At any rate, uh, yeah, you know, it's an obsession, uh, we could say, but it's also my life. It's, it's a way of life. I cannot, I've tried. It lasts for about five hours. I, I've tried to stop thinking about the politics. I've tried to stop thinking about all the bad stuff I know about this disease and all the terrible things that the government, the US government, the Canadian government, the British government, um, uh, the Scottish government, the Danish government, the German government, the French, the Australians, oh my God. Uh, you know, I, I cannot, I, I try to look away. I try to look away and, and I'm always, you know, it's like the cliche, you know, but I'm always sucked back in. Uh, you know, I thought I could get out, but now I'm sucked back in. And I really, uh, I don't think I'll ever uh, not be interested and not feel that I want to contribute in some way or, or have some, feel that I have something to say, you know, not, not everybody, no one else really has had the experience I had of functioning as a journalist with these people in, during those years that they were laying down these policies. I know who they are. They're just human beings. You know, I, I have sat in rooms with them and talked to them. Uh, those interviews are still fresh in my mind, believe it or not. Uh, 
So it, it's, they're not just some vague entity far off in the distance. You know, they are real flesh and blood people who said those things to me, who believed what they said, who did those actions or, or took those actions, who have uh, failed me and everyone else with this disease. I have uh, a tremendous personal anger and anger you know, on my behalf and tremendous anger on behalf of all, everyone with this disease. And that's another thing I wish I could get rid of. Anger is a natural response to being traumatized. Uh, you know, I've never been able to do that. I wonder how much it helps you uh, with your writing. It acts as a motivator. It is my motivator. It is. If I wasn't angry, I could walk away. Um, so, yeah. I, one of my favorite book reviews of Osler's Web, I, I remember a phrase from it that I love so much because it really captured the reality. It said, you know, Hillary Johnson, writing with quiet fury. <laughs> and it went on to describe the book. Uh, I thought, yeah, I, I'd never thought of it that way, but yes, I was furious, but I kept it on, I thought I was keeping it under wraps. You know, I was trying to lay out the evidence as best I could. And every once in a while I would, you know, take, take the reader and sort of uh, give an aside, you know, kind of a, hey, listen up, you know, and I would provide a little editorial interpretation. And then I would, you know, segue back into just the facts, ma'am, and uh, hope that, you know, the reader could add. And, uh, you know, I, one of the most wonderful things anyone ever said to me was actually Harvey Whittemore, who's a uh, famous uh, Nevadan uh, who uh, helped found the Whittemore-Peterson Institute. Um, over dinner one evening, he, the only time I've had dinner with him, uh, he said, Hillary, I had a very, very difficult time getting through your book. And I thought, oh no, he's going to say something really insulting. <laughs> I was trying to stay calm. And he said, uh, and there was silence, actually, everyone at the table heard him. Everybody was probably thinking the same thing, like, oh no. And um, he said, you know, the, the problem was, I would get to the end of the page and I would be so angry, I would want to throw the book at the wall. And he said, it took me a long time <laughs> to go from page to page because of that rage that the book inspired in me. And I remember I was quiet for a while and I said, Harvey, that's what I was going for. <laughs> and it's, it's true, I wanted people to be angry and do something. And unfortunately, uh, no one ever did. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I still hope, I still have hope. You know, the evidence is all there. And I still hope that, uh, you know, maybe I'll be, you know, gone. I won't live to see it. But I hope that the evidence laid out in my book will serve can serve as the basis for um, uh, reparations, lawsuits, uh, you know, people who, whose lives have been destroyed, people who've had 30 
35 years of their lives lost, who've lived in poverty. And I'm not talking about myself exclusively. There are millions of us, you know, uh, and it was unfair, it was unjust. Parts of, parts of what happened were criminal. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still going on actually, in my opinion, I'm not uh, at all moved to optimism at this point, based on what I see in the research world. Um, but anyway, you, you know, I, I, I may not be around for it, but I, I still, you know, I do have that one thing that I'm pleased about, you know, that, that, uh, that I did that work. Um, and I, I only wish I'd been able to do many, many books like Oslo's Web. There are a lot of wrongs in this world that need to be righted, right? That's what drives journalists. You know? It occurred to me that uh, even though you weren't being monetarily um, paid for all of the work you've done around investigating everything around ME, the value of it remains uh, for the global ME community. Um, and like you say, that, that value may really emerge, hopefully in the nearer future. But I wanted to get back to the amplogen. Oh my God, how, <laughs> how did that happen? We just, way out there, I'm sorry, I didn't. No worries. Oh wow, that is really, okay, amplogen, uh, is a drug that I first heard about, obviously covering this story for, for my book. It was first given to a woman named Nancy Kaiser, who was dying of this disease. And Dan Peterson was reading the literature on amplogen. It's an immune modulator, uh, meaning it helps the immune system. And it's a very powerful antiviral which is another clue, another glaring clue uh, to what is driving this disease, which is infection in my, in my view. Anyway, it's a great drug. Uh, it was invented in the late 60s, early 70s. It's a synthetic um, interferon. Um, and the beauty of it is that it's non-toxic. Even the FDA admits it's safe. Um, over over a thousand doses now, maybe over ten thousand, maybe over a million. I I don't think it's a million, but uh, thousands of doses have been given to people with ME. Uh, it's um, probably the most potent uh, drug in the arsenal of drugs that could possibly help people with this disease. It does not help everybody, but it helps most people. And uh, I had a chance to get amplogen. I'd been ill for 29 years and I got amplogen for nine months. It involves lying you know, on your back for four hours, being infused uh, with, with the drug. It's, it's twice a week. And after you get the drug, especially in the beginning, you feel uh, like you just want to crawl into a cave and sleep for, you know, days afterward. 
but uh, you know, and that certainly happened to me. But uh, I would say by around the fourth or fifth month, things started really changing for me. Uh, it, it was not really overt. It was not something that I, I said to myself, oh my gosh, I just did something I never could have done. It was very gradual. So, um, but by the ninth month, I remember a friend who had known me for about 10 years, you know, she'd never known me when I was well, but she came to visit me for a weekend while, you know, after nine months and she, within 10 minutes, she looked at me and said, my God, you are, you are totally changed. I feel like I'm meeting you for the first time. And that was when I really, you know, took stock of kind of where I was intellectually, physically. I was upright. I felt sharp mentally. Okay, so at one point, I, after about eight or nine months on Amplogen, I, I had this very strange sensation that I was gliding over the, the ground, the earth, rather than walking. And it was the strangest feeling, as if I was on some kind of space-age scooter or something. It was just kind of like I was on a disc. It was just you know, uh, lifting me forward without any effort on my part. I kept, I would, I would constantly look at my feet to make sure they were on the ground. And indeed, I was walking and my feet were on the ground, but I couldn't get rid of the sensation that I was gliding, that I was above the earth. And I finally realized, wow, this is the first time since I was 35 years old that I am walking without any effort. In other words, there's no pain in my legs. I don't feel like I'm dragging my legs. I'm not out of breath. There's no effort involved. This is, this is what it's like to be well. You know, this is how everybody else feels all the time. But I, it had been so long since I'd felt that sensation that it didn't, it, it felt uh, highly abnormal to me. It felt wonderful. It was like, oh, thank God, something is moving me. You know, I don't have to make the effort. But it was me moving me. And, you know, that's one of the, that's Amplogen. It is a fantastic drug. And, and you know, I don't know if you can call this criminal. Uh, I will say, I mean, you must know the history of this. The way AIDS drugs were fast-tracked on almost, you know, uh, very little evidence that they worked. Maybe no evidence. It, it, you know, I, 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 I've read this history many times, but it's been a long time, um, about the way AIDS activists demanded that, you know, drugs into bodies, right? Remember, uh, it was very critical uh, that, you know, they made FDA sit up. They made life hell for people at the Food and Drug Administration. And I've talked to the CEO of uh, Hemispherics Biopharma, which manufactures Amplogen. And uh, he would probably hate that I'm saying this, but at one point he said to me, Hillary, you people with, with uh, ME, you need to go to the parking lot of the FDA in Rockville, Maryland, with a bunch of mattresses and set those mattresses on fire. You know, you need to do something massive, you know, something that will get the attention, people's attention, you know, and, you know, I, 
later he took that back. He said, please don't, you know, I was writing an article. He said, please don't use that in your story. <laughs> he didn't want to be the author, author of that. But, uh, you know, he is absolutely right. But it's never done, is it? it, it no one ever does anything like that. Um, they write petitions. They, they write petitions. They get a trillion names. They send them to people who could care less. And I just imagine them dropping the petition in the wastebasket. You know, uh, there was a hearing, I think it was in 2012, the people who are listening may know better in terms of what year it was, uh, but I think it was that long ago now, where FDA took comments from the public and many uh, valiant people with this disease showed up and uh, made speeches and, and pleaded and begged and with the FDA panel that was sitting there and you know told them how Amplogen had completely changed their lives. And uh, do you know, at the end of the day, the FDA panel voted no. They voted that it was safe, but they voted no on approving it for use. Um, and I will add that uh, one of the people who voted no was Anthony Komaroff, and who is in the United States. He's considered, you know, like he's on Mount Olympus for uh, having, you know, recognized the disease and fought for it in in a, in a way um, over the years. And uh, but uh, the other person who voted no was Beth Unger. At, from the CDC. She's the woman in charge of the disease now at the CDC, has been for 10 years. And we can see how very effective she's been. And you know, I'm obviously speaking sarcastically. For some reason, people with this illness, this massive illness that you know destroys your life, are not allowed to have amplitude. And you know, I would like to know why. Why are we not allowed to have this drug? You know, it's it's safe, it's efficacious. Is it that uh, Medicare would have to start paying for it? Are we concerned again about costs to the insurance companies and so on? You know, why why is it we can't have this drug? Why does FDA continue to say? We have no proof it's efficacious when, in fact, there's so much proof. And, you know, <clears throat> Hemispherix has even submitted a phase three trial showing effic efficacy, and that's the final phase. And I know you in Canada are, are fighting to get this drug, at least in some kind of... Uh, special access program. Yes, a trial program, special access. And I wish you all the luck, and I and I hope and pray that you do you do get it that, that you start. Some people at least are able to find some relief. So it was that FDA decision that cut you off from Amplogen. No, what happened was uh, after nine months, uh, Amospherix Biopharma actually ran out of the drug. If you can imagine, it's very expensive to produce. And they're a tiny, tiny little biopharma company. And they literally ran out of the drug. And this, you know, uh, I, I, I was never able to get back on it. By the time they got enough drug, 
uh, enough amplogen to start infusing people again, uh, they required that you pay for it. I was receiving it on a compassionate care basis. I cannot afford amplogen. It's uh, maybe uh, $40,000 a year alone for the drug. It might be more now. I, I'm not sure. It might be more, it might be a little less. Then you have infusion costs, you know, the cost of a nurse that you must pay because, you know, the government uh, will not approve it uh, as it would for um, any number of the AIDS drugs that are available to AIDS patients. Mm -hmm. Now it's not, it's not sure, especially if you've been ill as long as I have and you go off it, you gradually, it took me about uh, three or four months to start noticing that all those good effects, you know, I first noticed it walking. I wasn't floating over the earth anymore. I was back to finding walking agonizing. And, you know, it wasn't overnight, but gradually I realized, wow, I'm, I'm back. You know, the, the, the black and white me is back. That must be incredibly hard to know that you essentially recovered. Um, and now, but you can't get access to the medication that would make you so functional. I know. I mean, again, anger, real anger. Mm -hmm. it, I would like to, oh my, the fantasies I have. I, I, I will not talk about them. <laughs> but never say that women are less violent than men, okay? Because I have, I have lots of plans for certain people <laughs> in my dreams. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's an outrage. It's, it's horrific. It's just horrific. And again, we can go back to, is it because it's women? 80% or more? of people who are ill are women? Do they not matter? Are they so much second-class citizens that they can just be, uh, they can just be ignored? I mean, you know, so four million people in the, in the US may have this, 80% of them women, let's say 3.5 are women, 3.5 million. They're expendable? Apparently so. Uh, apparently they're, you know, I was making $50,000 a year in 1985 when I fell ill. I have actually worked out the numbers. You know, if I kept making $50,000 a year in 1985, uh, I have lost about $1.5 in income as a result of this disease. And that's not even really accurate because we're looking at $1,985. My contributions weren't important. You know, my the, the input I was going to have as a journalist, the things I might have done as a, as a reporter and a writer, of no importance. I was just sent out to pasture. Um, that's, you know, those are some of my emotions, I suppose, uh, about this. But yeah, Amplogen is a very sad story. And, you know, I'm certainly not the first who's been on Amplogen and then have it, ha had it withdrawn. There's a long history of that. Um, you know, the company has always been in financial straits because they can't get approved. They're now, they've moved on. They're, uh, they're uh, using Amplogen in new and different ways in several oncology trials in the U.S. and Europe. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're hoping that they can get Amplogen for ME sort of through the back way. <laughs> 
the back door, you know, once they get approved for that, uh, if, if they get approved for uses in oncology, maybe, uh, you know, they can start prescribing it for people with ME. Right. So what's next for you? What does your future hold, both in terms of uh, your journalistic work and in terms of your health? Are, are there any things uh, that you want to try next to maybe have a bump in quality of life? Well, I can say that the only thing that ever helped me uh, in 35 years was amplogen. So really, you know, in the first few years of illness, uh, when I was in my, still in my 30s, there were a few things that helped. Vitamin D shots helped, uh, gamma globulin helped. Uh, just small shots of gamma globulin would make me feel like I was almost well again. I, I think you pass over some you know, event horizon, as Paul Cheney used to say, where you know, you're, beyond, you're beyond redemption, essentially unless you come in with the big guns like amplogen. I don't know what else there's out there. I mean, I hear people talking about naltrexone and low dose naltrexone, et cetera. And I mentioned that just because, you know, wow, people were talking about low dose naltrexone in 1987. And uh, most people said it didn't work, but it's like we're, it's like I'm seeing a replay of the 1980s right now, actually, but not really. I mean, because people were much, uh, well, I'm an oldster now, so um, tip, doing that typical thing of sort of looking back and saying it was better back then. Uh, but I do feel that the people I met when I was, the patients I met when I was doing this book, who were uh, really activist oriented, there were people who, you know, were, were very in tune with the AIDS epidemic. You know, they, they knew people with AIDS and they modeled what they did after AIDS activists. They, you know, I'm thinking of people in San Francisco, the Bay Area, who got uh, the city council of San Francisco to hold meetings about this disease. And, but, you know, specific members of the city council got very, very involved in this and uh, people came, you know, they invited doctors like Paul Cheney and others to come and testify before them. They were going to enact legislation and so on. It was like, it was happening on the, on the local level uh, to, some, to some degree in, around the country. And you don't see that anymore. You just see these kind of broad based one day a year, people with this disease fan out through the halls of Congress and go see their congressperson and you know tell them their stories of woe and i can tell you that no one cares about stories of woe you know they're they're i've always maintained this they do not they do not change policy uh documentaries about individuals with this disease and how terrible it all was they don't change medical they don't change the, the health policies, they don't get it done, bottom line. There are lots of diseases, they're all terrible, and people if people are healthy, they don't want to hear about it. So, you know, it's the wrong tactic. 
to uh, tell your personal story of woe. This is this is not going to do it. But no one agrees with me on this. So maybe a few do. I don't know. Most people don't. They just want to talk about their misery, and that that isn't going. That's not political. It's not smart. It's not the way to go about it. Yeah, it's a, a, what I've learned. It's about building relationship with the policymakers. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, so, what's next for you in terms of your journalism? Well, I have to ask myself: Am I still a journalist? Uh, because really, when I write, the only thing that really, really drives me now continues to be this disease. And uh, I don't know, sometimes I think I've just become a Twitter journalist because I, do, I tweet so much. And I keep, every day I say, no, that's your last tweet, don't do another tweet. And then the day fall, the day turns and it's, an, it's a new day and something else motivates me to tweet. Um, so I'm doing journalism by tweet now and I, I hate that, I hate it. Uh, it's so simplistic and reduces everything to, you know, the number of characters you're allowed. And of course, there's so many misunderstandings and there's so much, uh, so much of a chance. It, it, it really induces snark also. Uh, you know, you're so tempted to um, be snarky and I really don't like that. I don't like to do it. And yet I find myself being, you know, being snarky a lot on Twitter. Uh, but so, you know, I would really like to do another book. I'm, I'm not quite sure uh, what form that would be, but I, I would really like to write a book about having written about the book that I wrote. I mean, uh, there's a big story behind Osler's Web, the, you know, the story of these individual people who I interacted with and how the, 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 the whole story was not really in Osler's Web. My original manuscript was 2,200 pages. I had to cut it by 12,000 page, 12, 1,200 pages. I had to cut it in half. So Osler's Web, as long as it is, as much of a doorstop as it is, is only half of what I wrote. Now, it's not that I want to publish the other half. Um, I'm not sure uh, that would make a great book. You know, the, the, the essentials are there now in Osler's Web. But uh, I, I still think there's much to be written about. And um, as much as I say, don't write about yourself, I, uh, you know, I, I think that there, there are some cases in which you kind of have to write about yourself because you're writing about events that you were involved in. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to write another book. Uh, you know, it intersects with my health, however. My health is, you know, there's definitely, it's not being studied, but there's definitely a correlation between uh, the deterioration that, uh, and uh, age. Uh, in many ways, um, you know, I am probably worse uh, than I was uh, 10 or 20 years ago. It's, it's not, you know, it sort of creeps up on you and you realize, gee, I, I, you know, 10 years ago, it wasn't like this. I could have done that. I could have been this way. I could have been that way. Um, 
and you you know you realize well this must be me combined with age you know i don't know what it's like to be to be 40 i don't know what it's like to be 50 i don't know what it's like to be 60 i only know because i can remember what it was like to be 35 um and then i know how i am now but i i know it's not normal i know i'm ill um i try not to get too angry and frustrated at myself because i have to keep reminding myself it's it's not that you don't want to do that you can't do it you know you can't do it because you have this illness but you know you have it for so many years and you start to forget that it's true yeah well hillary thank you so much for sharing your wisdom your personal experience your professional experience and thank you so much for putting pen to paper for posterity uh, that has such immense value to our community thank you scott you've been uh, a great listener and you've asked me questions no one else has ever asked me and i think i've been more uh, talked more about myself than i ever have before well a big thank you to journalist hillary johnson for sharing not only her personal experiences with medical error, but also what she uncovered through her research and writing. The importance of Hillary's work in exposing medical corruption cannot be understated. When Hollywood makes a movie about how millions of very sick and disabled people were gaslighted for egos and profit by the medical industry, Hillary's work will be priceless in making that movie come to fruition. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that in a number of ways. You can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. You can also become a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron. If you are dealing with your own experience with medical error or living with a chronic illness and need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening. Be kind to yourself and be kind to others.